everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host, owner, founder of Be There in 5, the company best known for creating something called the Reminder Mat that sees you on your way out of your house instead of on your way in, like the stale old welcome mat does. Author of Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star, an internet fairy tale of fame, fortune, and followers, available for sale, sale wherever books are sold and on Amazon. Through the show notes, it's still currently on sale against my will out of some book promotion Amazon's doing that I have no control over. So get it while it's hot. I try to say something slightly different about it every week, but what I really always need to clarify is that it's a children's parody book. A lot of people are like, can't wait to buy it for my niece. And I'm like, that's so great. But like, also, it's not for your niece. (laughs) It's uh, I always say like, it's one of those things where the jokes are, they're not explicit. They're not crass. They're just mature. So in the same way that you didn't understand what Dion was saying when she said to Amber, there goes your social life when Amber said her doctor said she should avoid things where balls fly at her nose. Like, you didn't, you probably rewatched that like two years ago and were like, oh, right. She, her social life wasn't ruined because she frequently has Wilson's tennis balls flying at her nose. So like, it's not going to, you know, ruin anything for your kid. And there's one line that says F you tummy tea money, which, you know, give or take that one. But the rest is fine. It's it's meant to, like, be a funny thing to give to, like, give it a baby shower or like to a friend that loves social media to have like a faux children's book. That's actually not at all a children's book because it gives terrible advice. But the end is heartwarming. Anyway, it is Wednesday, March 20th. It's been a week since we last talked. And last week was so crazy with the college scandal and with the Instagram blackout, and there was just so much to talk about. And thank you to Molly for coming on the podcast. That was so much fun. I love having conversations with people. And even though I'm not actively seeking guests in terms of people like interview who are promoting stuff, I do want to have more conversations with interesting people because it's just, it's a new perspective. And I'm sure you guys get sick of just hearing me talk a stream of consciousness at times. I think it's good to change it up. So I have some fun people coming on in the next couple months that I'm really excited to share with you, especially some uh, influencers who I love and who I haven't even met in person, some of them that I want to have come on. I want to have an honest honest discussion about like their life as influencers. I feel like I am so much more interested in like your rise to popularity and your dealing with trolls and tell me like honestly how it makes you feel in you know, what's the moment you felt the coolest and have felt the lamest? And what about this industry do I not understand that I'm too hard on you guys about? I, especially with having the discussion in the Facebook group. And I got a lot of feedback from you guys a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about how I think that there's an interesting uh, line between uh, f- what makes you follow in the first place, what makes a follow go to a hate follow, and what makes a hate follow go to an unfollow. And there's just such a fascinating discussion around that that I don't think enough people are talking about because it's all about followers and engagement. But it's not there's not a lot of discussion about like the prevention of disengagement and the management of your persona when you start to get 
more wealthy, more famous, more out of touch and how the people that got you there feel isolated when your life changes so much and you don't really let them in anymore. Um, so anyway, I'm hoping to have some interesting conversations surrounding that. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like last week was so wild, but this week not as much went on. I feel like, well, okay, so Taylor Swift did show up at the iHeartRadio Awards. That was one thing I was like, really excited about and I thought maybe it would be a thing and of course it wasn't I just like I showed on my Instagram story this past week an example of how like the album announcement of reputation all went down to to show like there are situations where she does bait fans kind of and things that I think she did to kind of actively mislead people about rep what reputation was going to be about um but you know that was weird her posting every day for a week having two L covers and then nothing and then she shows up at the radio awards and a sequin number looks like again, like a mermaid, but her shoes are butterflies. She posts three pink photos on her feed to optimize feed flow. I'm hoping the next week's going to be orange and, you know, just kind of like leaves us hanging out to dry. I will say what made me so mad is her speech made every single person that was like, you guys are insane. You like Taylor Swift, TS7 conspirators. You overthink everything. It's not that complicated. Like, quit trying to solve the Da Vinci Code. But the way I, again, and maybe I am crazy, but the way she delivered her speech was kind of in code. And and the people that say things like, you're crazy, you're reading too much into things, don't, like, have enough depth or context about the, how she's done this in the past to understand why she would be doing that. And I get why it looks crazy, but... The most notable things to me were she posted a photo that said I going to the iHeart uh, radio carpet and wanted to show you first. And then went in her speech, she said, when there'll be new music, you'll be the first to know. So, of course, I'm like, oh, the first. Cool, cool. Something's happening the first. <laughs> um, but as I mentioned previously, my initial conjecture about TS7 was the Code 103 thing where April... Um, 14th is the 103rd day of the year after she said there was 103 instruments and that's also National Scrabble Day. And she posted a photo of her playing Scrabble saying, let the games begin back in November. I don't know. There's a, there's just, I have, I have so many different thoughts, but anyways, to wrap this up, I won't talk about Taylor Swift too much this week. I'm sure I've isolated so many of you and in, in being so T-Swift centric lately, but the um, way she delivered that speech, she's, so we're talking about how sometimes like people make forecasts and predictions, but there are unforeseeable factors that can change those forecasts and predictions. And in this instance with her tour, the unforeseeable factor was her fans, which doesn't make sense. There is not a more foreseeable and predictive, predictable factor than Taylor Swift fans. Like she posts a photo of her feet and the crowns go wild. It has millions of likes. Tumblr is, is ablaze. She like steps out of the studio with Apple AirPods in and and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, my God, we stand a queen. Got to get AirPods. Cords are for losers. I'm like, OK, those have been out for a while. And like every like a ton of people wear AirPods. But all of a sudden she does it. And it's like, I don't know, sweeping the nation. It's it, it, it makes me laugh how people react to her. And um, she after saying the forecast predictions twice, she said unfor unforeseeable factors twice. Um, and then saying her fans were unforeseeable factor, which I don't agree with at all. I kind of was like, maybe this is a weather thing she's getting at. There, there, there seems to be a lot of um, themes relating to weather. Step out into the daylight and let go. Her 
the most recent photo of her sitting in front of a fence, which I'm so bitter about fences because that freaking five hold fence that made me think she was doing a countdown after the um, like the, the eight toughs, the seventh step, the si- I don't know, I forget, whatever. And then there was five fence holes and I was like, Houston, we have a countdown. We kind of did maybe the L cover, but again, that's not worthy of a countdown. But really, like what we have so far is just a bunch of different motifs, mentions, allusions, et cetera, to butterflies, to rainbows. She's putting light flares, bokeh, and color fogs on all of her photos. She talked about the daylight. She dressed as a mermaid. She looked like a mermaid in that romper. A lot of palm trees, even though the Marc Jacobs jacket from that reputation photo where people were like, oh, my God, there's palm trees and flamingos and like patches about that seem like TS7 themed. It's a Marc Jacobs jacket that already had patches, but she added two extra to make seven total trees, which interesting. She also had the post with seven trees. Every post has like hearts. There was stars above the palm trees. There's some like diamond kind of light flary effects in some of the photos. Everything's very pinky, purpley blue, very pastel-y. Some yellow sometimes. Um, there's like her mention of weather in the speech. She said if you whether you came to a rain show or when we had nice weather, thanks so much, you know, for coming. Like in that same iHeartRadio speech where she talked about forecasts and unforeseeable factors. I'm like, why'd you call that out? Like there's a lot of other things people would overcome or I thank them for other than just like the weather at the show. Um, There's, you know, she had like pairs of dice uh, patches on her, some of her rep clothing. And it was part of merch. And it's like pair of dice, paradise lyrics, like darkest little paradise Island breeze lights down low. No one has to know. Uh, he, he can join the heights and we'll move to an island. And I just want to be drinking on the beach with you all over me. A lot of beach, a lot of Island, a lot of paradise, a lot of outdoor stuff. Um, and I I just, but then there's also that first L article. It's like the, about the picture frames of a feeling and F Scott Fitzgerald and the whole thing with like books and chapters and can't wait for the next chapter and don't read the last page of the last song on reputation. And I don't know, we're, we're all over the place gang. And basically what we have is a verbal painting of a Lisa Frank trapper keeper. Rainbows, unicorns, butterflies, bright colors, light flares, like clouds, daylight, flamingos, palm trees. Like, I I don't know what she wants from me. This is just so such the polar opposite of reputation, which is I'm kind of like, you know, it's day and night. Like, is it literally day and night? Is it something with daylight that feels too obvious? I think it's just a song lyric. Um. And I don't really know where we stand. My, My most recent conjecture that I put on Instagram that's in a highlight called TS7 is that I, I feel like there's something going on with mirrors, holograms, and illusions because, well, there's a lot to this. And again, I don't want to talk about Taylor Swift the whole time, but um, in the song So It Goes, she call, she says, all eyes on you, my magician, all eyes on me, your illusionist. It's a very provocative, it's her most sexual song. It's kind of where the Reputation album takes a turn. A lot of people have a theory that the first half of Reputation was uh, the, the more bombastic, highly produced songs that, we're kind of added on at the end and that's the spray painting of reputation on the plane just to like kind of put the edge on the record that there needed to be. And that track seven on is more accurate of where she is now. And it's obviously interesting that it's track seven and uh, TS seven is what we're talking about. And also in Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse five. And so it goes is is kind of his transition phrase that indicates when a character's died and you're moving on and the old Taylor, you know, is dead. And again, that song is so it's really hinting at a secretive relationship or a forbidden relationship and 
a situation where you need to act like a magician or an illusionist or provide some sort of other picture. But when you get someone alone, scratches down your back now, like we get caught up in a moment. So whereas before we're like, oh, it's delicate. Is it cool that I said all that? Like, I just met you at a dive bar on the side where you at. Nothing like happened. But then so it goes is kind of like, you know, I, I don't know. It seems to me to be a transition. It's an interesting theory that from seven on is either more reflective of where she is now or kind of a snapshot of where she was at that time between 1989 and reputation. I kind of think it's more so the latter in her being in a relationship where she was happy and she was comfortable. And I don't know if she's still in that relationship. I, again, I don't think there's anything on reputation about Joe. They hadn't been dating long enough. We know when the songs were written, they weren't on the record dating yet. Um, So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we get some songs that are more so of a, a snapshot from her past or are, reflective of where her relationship is now or where she wants us to think her relationship is now. There's a lot of engagement rumors that are kind of weird to me because I just don't see that happening. But if it does, whatever. There were also rumors about her and Calvin getting engaged too, like before they broke up. So you just never know like who these sources are and what the point of planning it would even be or if people just listen to the totally illegitimate sources. I don't know. All I know is I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out. It'll be hilarious to see if I like if there's any ounce thread of correct information that I'm spewing. I'm a little scared because I fear it will ruin my credibility, but like, you know, this is my journey and I have to own it. And it's an important one at that and uh, happy to be here to keep you updated. And the last thing I'll say that I can tie together is the way she described um, like unforeseen factors pertaining as they pertain to uh, forecasts and predictions, like kind of sounded like the textbook butterfly effect because the butterfly effect is a theory developed by a meteorologist that explains how uh, tiny variables can affect major weather patterns that you can never predict like the flap of a butterfly's wings and um if when you read about the butterfly effect they say like the line unforeseeable factors like several times and i'm like she probably did a lot of research on it and like whatever so i don't i don't know i i i hope it's not butterfly themed i'm not really a butterfly gal those like cheesy hyper feminine symbols kind of bother me like I love dolphins and like getting a tattoo of them like no offense if you have one if I had a tattoo it would be like a ramekin of a dipping sauce like I just don't have an icon or animal insect that I'm like hyper attached to besides tugboat but also I just I I I go through such phases there's no way there's not one thing I can think of that a tattoo would a thing I would like that would stand the test of time one could argue my interests and tastes are not timeless and classic they are very much fleeting and trendy and then i have to deal with those repercussions later but that's that's half that that's half the fun of it of being a student of pop culture anyway guys the one thing i forgot to mention um in recent weeks is i'm so bummed about alex trebek like if you've listened to this podcast for a while you know i'm like a diehard jeopardy fan and i apply every year twice a year i never get through i probably don't pass the entry exam but sometimes I really think I did pretty well. But then sometimes I've asked Greg questions, like, you know, the answers you have, you have to answer the question and it's like fill in the blank, which is really hard within 10 seconds. So think of like how quickly HQ goes by and having to like type something and dig it from out of your head. Um, and when I've taken those entrance exams before, I've asked Greg for like answers and stuff because, you know, I'm just trying to get on and then I'll fend for myself. But you know, given the college admissions academic forgery and nepotism scandal, I'm like, well, I don't want to get caught up in some Jeopardy conspiracy because I didn't answer all the questions. So now I'm trying to be a purist. But anyway, he has uh, stage four pancreatic cancer, which 
as we all know, is a very, very tough prognosis, a very, very tough cancer to beat. And um, his message was so sweet and uplifting. And he was like, I am going to beat this. I have no choice. I will beat the very low survival rate. And, you know, if anybody can, I hope it's him. I hope he's healthy otherwise. And um, he's got all the resources in the world to, you know, get the treatment he needs. And I mean, how great would it be if we saw an example of somebody that actually beat pancreatic cancer? But I don't know. It just made me sad. And he's still working. He's going to work through the entire thing. And he's just so damn good at his job. He really is. People uh, don't appreciate him as much as they should. He's so dry and he's so good and he never messes up. And the way he delivers like rap lyrics and some of the questions is just, it's priceless. It, like he's like, this Bronx-based artist is best known for her line, these expensive, these is red bottoms, these is bloody shoes. And I'm just like, oh my God, how, do he, he, how does he keep a straight face? His delivery is outstanding. And I just, I, I want to get on Jeopardy while he's there so badly. And I do think he announced his retirement, but I'm forgetting when it is. But I don't know. I, I know I've talked about this before. I'm just obsessed with the people that get on Jeopardy in their one shot on TV, the anecdote they choose to share at the beginning. They're always so embarrassing, so cringy, so nerdy, and so not funny that there's really only two schools of thought. Jeopardy really micromanages what their anecdotes are and almost is pandering to what we think the type of person that would get on Jeopardy would be like in terms of like level of nerdiness and kind of their, for lack of a better term, social IQ, like they, they might not be as in tune with what's uh, conventionally funny with everybody else. Sometimes people are a little too brainy. And the other, the other side of that is, are the type of people that get on Jeopardy just so like intelligent and removed that they think like a uh, an anecdote about like a mishap at a petting zoo is a real knee slapper like the things they say they're not even funny they're not even notable half the time they're in like a weird sad club and like you can hear the crowd kind of like sigh oh my god that reminds me there's one that's like the sickest Trebek burn I need to find it and put it in an audio clip but um it, this lady's like explaining about how she's in a club where they rap about nerdy things and I don't know, I'm just hold on let me find it favorite type of music is something I've never heard of, but it doesn't sound like fun. I think it's very fun. It's called Nerdcore Hip Hop. It's Nerdcore Hip Hop. Hip-hop. Yes. Um, it's uh, people who identify as nerdy, rapping about the things they love, video games, science fiction, having a hard time meeting romantic partners, you know. <laughs> it's really catchy and fun. Losers, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that is so mean. I, I still can't believe you said that, but it makes you laugh every time. The people laughing in the videos, because I took it from YouTube. Um, crap, now I'm on a roll where I'm, like, on Jeopardy YouTube, and I feel like I want you to hear clips. Just like, I know, like, a lot of people watch Jeopardy, but I just want, like, everybody, I don't know, don't you, like, feel like a good cringe is good for the soul now and again? Like, let me, this, there's one where, like, a lady talks about going to the bathroom that just it makes me want to crawl in a hole and die. Hold on. <laughs> retired high school math teacher she was traveling in jamaica on a rafting trip and yes you had to answer a call oh yes uh this is a very long time ago we've been married 38 years and this is 37 years ago and uh, we were on the rafting trip and i really needed a bathroom my husband says well just get off the raft go over there to the um side on, on the um land 
The trouble was, there were some cows there, and I just couldn't deal with the cows. So, unfortunately, I had to wait a long time. You, you, you have one minute, 30 seconds on national TV to state your truth, <laughs> to tell your story. You give them five anecdotes. They can pick any of the five. Fair, that there might be one that, you know, isn't your favorite. But you don't pull one about how you had to pee really bad on a rafting trip. First of all, I don't know, can't you get in the water or would you, like, get rafted? That would have been a better story if she, like, decided to go in the ravine and she got swept over a waterfall. Like, that is worth her 30 seconds of fame. But the thing is, she didn't even pee. She just thought about it and didn't. Like, that's not a story. Nothing happened. Like, think about every time in your life you had to go to the bathroom and somebody offhandedly is like, there's some bushes over there. Like... Would that stand out in your brain? Is like, like, uh, God, I can't, I can't. It's it's so good. It's so bad. I'm living. I'm loving. I'm loving. I can't. Um, The other one that like kills me. I mean, there's so many that kill me, but not all of them are available on YouTube. There's this guy that tells the. (coughs) It's a a bad story, and B the delivery's bad. It could have been passed off as a story if he had to practice the punchline, but the punchline never really happens. And the audience's laughter makes me so uncomfortable. And I just like, I feel so bad for this guy. But I also am like, how can he be so smart, but so ill prepared, you know? Anyways, listen to this one. Maybe this is the last one. It's sped up because on YouTube, they do that sometimes for copyright issues. I don't know. So it sounds a little funny, but here it is. Dan Tran is from Boston, Massachusetts, a PhD student in physics, who you would think is very, very bright. And yet he made... A strange mistake while visiting Paris once. That's right, Alex. Um, So um, when I was a senior in high school, I I took French in high school, uh, we went on an exchange trip um, and we arrived incredibly jet lagged. Uh, No cappuccino could really save us in that regard. And uh, during an open air tour bus tour um, in Paris, I looked up and I said to my friends, hey, you know, the moon looks pretty bright tonight and today. And, And they just turned to me it's like Dan that's not it's not the moon it's like it's the sun it's like no guys it's it's uh it's it's the sun but um but then you know it turned out it was actually the sun and not the moon and I'm still confused it nowadays just just tell people the windows were heavily tinted <laughs> in the bus like what it what was that that was so like that uh, I don't know guys it, the thing that kills me too is like as a person that often plays Jeopardy from their home with a clickable, you know, retractable pen so I can practice buzzer timing, because should you ever get on the show, people think all that matters is the brains. But really what matters is the timing. You can know all of the answers. But if you don't know how to time it in a way where you can think through the question thoughtfully, but then buzz in a way that's not too early while the question's happening and not too late where somebody else has gotten it first. I mean, that the, 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 there's so much strategy involved besides the brains and timing is all of it. And I just, I I just would really use that as my moment to shine. And it it just kills me that some of these people, A, don't go find any clothes other than like the worst twin set at Talbot's and B, don't finesse their stories better so they can impress one of the most important staples, cultural staples of the last 30 years. He has been on Jeopardy for over 30 years. Like who, I mean, I just truly he he's an institution. He's a Can- I was going to say he's an American institution, but he's actually Canadian. <sighs> what are you going to do? And then like the, there's the, the nerve of this one guy. OK, this is the last one. But there, there was one that I'm going to find where this guy straight up disses 
uh, Trebek's suit. And it's not just like, hey, bro, your suit sucks. It's like mean because it it's it suggests he's uh, anyway sorry i keep like spoiling them before i play them let me find it million dollars at stake in this tournament and if you win it you're going to spend a lot of it to work on a documentary what's the documentary about it's uh it's on sweatshop labor and in the, our country uh in our country and around the world um so i went to bangladesh about 10 years ago and toured a garment factory and i thought what if what if I saw a shirt that I was wearing being made by these people? And so it's to try to put a face on who might makes our clothes. And I maybe hope. you can find out the names of the eight-year-olds who made your fancy suit there, Alex. Yeah, I hope. Oh. <laughs> what, was that too low? Was that a low blow? Yes, low blow. Like, what are you talking about? It's, it's so uncomfortable when people don't know that an insult, like... It's not like a playful jab. It's like hugely insulting. It like kind of reminds me of Winston on New Girl, how he loves pranks, but like he can't discern the line between like ruining someone's life or like doing something incredibly stupid. So he'll like take the batteries out of the remote and somebody's trying to turn up the volume. He's like, oh, you've been pranked. And it's like, who cares? Like, I'll go get new batteries. Like, my life is not affected. Alternatively, he'll kill your cat and be like, oh, God, you so hard. Your cat's dead. Um, and it's like. Either needs to be a happy medium. And um, anyway, this is where I'm done. I wasn't really planning on doing that, but I had a great time going through YouTube clips. <laughs> but anyway, all my best to Trebek. Hope I can get on. Hope my anecdote lives up to the harsh judgments on this podcast that I don't know why I'm so comfortable putting on the record. Because for all I know, they actively try to make you sound insane. And they probably actively make you wear twin sets. I, I just cannot understand why somebody wouldn't go in there with the fiercest, slightly shoulder-padded power blazer known to man and a fresh blowout. It just, it, it's illogical to me, to be quite honest. But I know looks aren't everything and, like, whatever, but also, I don't know, I'm shallow, so. Anyway, what's been happening this week? I mean, not, like, a whole lot. I feel like I got to, I got some, um, I actually got a bunch of questions at the podcast at be there in 5com email, and they're kind of, like, some good, deep, and interesting questions that I'm happy to answer. Um, that kind of relate to pop culture, kind of don't. So I think I might just go through those and do like the rest of the episode as like a, a response to the things you guys asked to talk to talk about. Um, so yeah, reminder, if you ever ha want me to address anything, podcast at be there in five.com. It's also an inbox to actually read because it's not cluttered. And especially when there's like some like more private things, I've just been like responding to people individually because I'm like, I feel like I don't want to make light of your situation and read this on air, even though I know the juicier question the better okay let's see i just got one that said inquiring minds want to know what the hell megan is having another baby shower for did kate have one you know to my knowledge kate's weren't publicized at all most of like their personal stuff their birthday party showers weddings they attend like is pretty under wraps i don't know why megan's are so publicized like on the one hand they're like hiring a task force to handle online bullying but on the other hand, I think she like actively pursues some of the press. Like she obviously had a few of her friends talk to People Magazine, quote unquote, anonymously, uh, to talk about how like great she is, and how she like builds fires and you know gives you fresh linens and makes you tea at her house. It really didn't make any sense, but uh, yeah. Well, two things. One, I don't think it's that weird to have two baby showers, especially if you split your family and friends in two different countries or locations. Like I could see myself having like a Chicago one for local friends and then like, you know, go home with my, uh, you know, 
mom and mom's friends and sister-in-law and whatever. So I don't actually shame anybody for having two. I do think that given the hoopla of that first shower and like the, you know, away, 17 away suitcases they gave away and the fact that somebody gifted her an orange tree she flew home private with. And there was like just, I mean, it was estimated to have cost about a half million dollars. But I don't think Megan footed any of that bill. Like when does the 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 honored guest put the bill for their own shower? I'm assuming it was like Gamal Clooney, even that chartered the plane, you know? I don't think that's like a taxpayer sitch that they'd be down with. But also the that baby shower was in a suite that was like so bonkers expensive each night, like $32,000. But also there's no way they paid that. Like that's where the news is so silly and reporting things at their retail value because famous people do not pay retail for anything. The the trade-off for the publicity that hotel got is so much worth so much more than $32,000 because I, I wasn't even familiar with that hotel. Um, I, I thought she would have stayed in like a bigger, more secure one, to be honest. But anyway, the... Uh, negative press surrounding that would make me think she would downplay a second one if she was having one. I don't know anything about the second one, but the fact that after the first baby shower, she there was like a story that came out on Daily Mail that was like pictures of the you know patients that received the blooms from Megan's baby shower because they all made bouquets for like underprivileged underprivileged or sick children. I forget what the charity was, which is nice. Like I'm in support of in general, but like obviously they, they, they were told that like the meat, they planted that with the media to be like, Oh no, all those flowers and all that luxurious stuff. Like we did stuff for a good cause too. We swear. So I don't know. And I also think it's a girl because on the side of the box of the cotton candy machine, you could like check one pink or orange and they checked pink. And granted, I know like, you know, orange is kind of like an eyesore. So maybe that's more the issue, but it just seemed like a very girly shower in my opinion, based on like the flowers and stuff too. But anyway, I guess they're probably they, she says they don't know, but I have a feeling they they do know and they're just not telling anybody. Um, let's see. Somebody said feeling bummed for Biebs. Maybe talk about his mess. I feel so bad. He's unhappy. I think NT has some blinds about him, Haley and Selena. I haven't seen any about with Selena involved. All I really know about Biebs is yeah, yeah, like it's so sad. He like right before his 21st birthday, he like Instagrammed or tweeted out like please pray for me. I'm really struggling. And like, I think he's really struggling and he's battling depression openly. And, um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's incredibly sad. I, I think that fame, everybody reacts to fame vastly different. And I think that hitting the apex of your fame in a developmental stage of your life can go one of two ways. It can go highly micromanaged by your parents and team Taylor Swift style. And you maintain a level head. You have your same friends from childhood. You kind of, don't get in that party scene and you really focus on your art, your craft, whatever. Biebs went off the deep end, uh, peeing in buckets, drag racing, sleeping with hookers, doing drugs. I mean, Selena and him were clearly so toxic for each other. He went the other way. Can you turn that around? Absolutely. But I do think that part of uh, part of being human is like you you can't stay in a perpetual situation of emotional highs all the time or drug highs at that. And that if the highs are high and the lows are lows, it's just such a volatile position to be in. And I think for somebody like Justin, who was such high potential, who has gotten himself in so much trouble 
in in so deep with, you know, whether it's addictions or, you know, bad behavior, whatever his vices are. The fact that he probably feels a loss of control is incredibly difficult. The fact that he's not living up to his potential is probably frustrating. He had such a strong couple years of music and then kind of just like disappeared. And I think, too, like I spent this is I mean, what I gather happens with drugs, especially when you get into like heroin, is that you experience a high so incredible that it destroys your pleasure centers and going forward, anything you do is never going to match how you felt that one time. And I think that there's like emotional parallels you can draw to that in terms of fame and that, that, that in the height of your fame and in the height of, you know, when you're semi sober and not partying too hard and you haven't gone downhill and you haven't broken the law or made mistakes or had a bad reputation it's almost like so incredibly hard to ever feel that good again. And when you're in so deep, it feels you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You can't see it out the other side. And I can just totally understand how when you've made a series of bad mistakes and you're facing what could have been and how great it could have been, had you not done all those things, but you're your own worst enemy and you're still doing those things. And even on your good days, even on your sober days, even though you make tiny bits of improvement, you're never going to feel as good as you once did. And that in and of itself is depressing. So I don't know. I'm not an expert. That's just like it, I'm projecting. Like if I were Justin Bieber, that's how I would feel is like, w- like, what am I doing? How did it get this far? Why do I look like a doodle bear tattooed from head to toe? Like, why did I sleep with prostitutes? I have this beautiful, faithful wife that's really trying, but like she doesn't understand kind of my story arc and I still struggle in Miss Selena and I want to make music, but I am having trouble getting out of bed, much less getting into the studio and being creative. Like that's another thing when you're depressed or anxious or in a, in a dark place, it's, it's very hard to be creative. There's a, there's a a level of, I think, sadness or that I can still channel energetically into, into being creative, into writing, into whatever that I allows a distraction, but then there's that can't get out of bed level. That's just a straight up cloud where it feels impossible to do anything. Everything becomes daunting. And I, I mean, I I really hope that he gets the help he needs and he finds the peace he's seeking. And I hope his church can help him. I hope Haley can help him. I again, I don't really know the depth of it. Like Etsy, Etsy, and he had some blind items that were pretty dark about like him, you know, wanting to hurt himself and stuff. And like, it's so scary and sad for somebody, especially that's so talented and that like, I know he loves his mom, and he loves Jesus and he loves his wife. And I feel like he does have a good heart and it's hard to see people. I don't know. It's hard to see people really succumb to their demons, especially when you can tell they're actively trying to get out of it. And like, it's just, it's such a addiction, such a strong, intense, crazy thing. And I I don't know if that's the issue, but I'm assuming a lot of it's drug related. Um, Speaking of Wendy Williams, like so brave, so amazed. She's always been such a diabolical figure and like that. She's always saying she speaks the truth and she really gives her opinion before she has facts and even if it's not popular, she's never really cared. I've always loved hot topics for that reason, but there is kind of this contradiction in like being so harsh on other people while hiding such intense secrets. And I love the fact that she just came out there and she was like, I struggle with addiction. I struggle with cocaine addiction. Every night I leave here, I have a 24 hour sober coach. I go to a sober home. Me and the boys talk about our problems at night. We read, we, we, you know, just spend time together and try to find happiness outside of substances uh, lights out at 10 and then in the morning I come back and see you guys and like that is my truth right now and I was like oh my gosh that was 
I don't know. I just thought it was really brave. I feel like normally you wouldn't come to work and you'd just say something vague about exhaustion or dehydration. You'd go to the Selena Gomez route and you just wouldn't address it. But there's so much power in addressing it. She's lucky that she has access, resources and money for a 24-7 sober coach and to live in a sober house. Not everybody's in that position. But also a lot of people watch, you know, syndicated broadcast TV and a lot of people of a lot of different backgrounds and income ranges and life experiences are going to be able to see that and see an example of somebody who has a lot to lose, but chose to be honest anyway, chose to seek treatment anyway, chose to say, look, this is so serious and so beyond me that I'm in my 50s and I'm still battling addiction. Cocaine and whatnot isn't something you just like, it's not just a party drug. And you, you know, your 20s that you take and you bounce right back from some people really have trouble ever being the same. And it's just, it's a great warning for people that are thinking about dabbling or starting or, or maybe in the early stages of this that they can kind of course correct for. And it's an important lesson for both the people suffering and friends of people suffering that you just really never know. And so often these secrets, uh, they, they, people suffer in silence. And it's just important to like open up a dialogue in a major, major platform and I'm proud of her and I'm really happy that she did that. And I, and I hope she gets better too. I was never sure if the Graves disease was like all of it or some of it or what. I know there's a lot of weirdness with her husband, but I mean, she comes out there energized and like sassy and sharp as ever. And I don't know. It's just wild how you would never know. It's, it's so, it just is so crazy. We're constantly reminded. And we, I talked about this in the episode where we discussed Bourdain and Kate Spade. It's just like, you, you can never look at your own issues and coulda, woulda, shoulda about how you wouldn't be this way if you didn't do something or how you won't be this way when something happens. It's, it's things that deeply internal are never going to be drastically changed by your external factors. And when you're unhappy and you're like, oh, I just hate this city. When I move to California, it'll all be better. No, it's going to be worse because you spend all this time and money moving and banking all your happiness on one city that it's not going to give you because your experience is internal. And I think so often we seek solace in these places, in jobs, in location, in boyfriends, in, uh, you know, travel and life experiences and these things that like, yeah, are great. And it's important to look forward to things and these moments of joy do help us string together our days. But there's so, so much work and maintenance that has to go on inside to be in a place where you're able to accept yourself and your state of being and find joy despite your surroundings and living your life to only feel as a reflection of your surroundings is going to be a very difficult thing to sustain because the reality of life is that you cannot control your environment and a lot of stuff's going to happen. And if your mood and state of being is completely volatile, depending on that, it's going to be a rough ride. And I just think that that's why mental health discussions and therapy and, you know, having a conversation of at what point are you suffering ver versus what's the human experience? I think sometimes people will write off anxiety and depression as just like, well, everybody's got their stuff. And like, yeah, they do. But also there comes a point where you don't even know what normal is. And then your normal becomes depressed. And then it becomes difficult to discern uh, between what you do and don't have to be dealing with. And medicating or not is such a personal decision but it's one of those things where if we have the you know technology and resources to correct for some of these chemical imbalances at a point they're worth having the discussion over and i and i find so commonly that 
especially with shows like A Million Little Things, the way they represent antidepressants is so upsetting. I feel like it worsens the stigma and it doesn't open up the dialogue. And I guess my way of seeing it has always been like, if you are a diabetic, you're not going to deny yourself insulin. If you have an anxiety, panic disorder, depression, I feel like it should be the same thing because it, it, it truly becomes chemical and you can't think your way out of something chemical at times. And I don't know, I was just having, I was having an interesting conversation with my doctor, uh, like an annual exam. And they ask now about like, how are you feeling? Are you depressed? And they ask a lot more mental health questions, which, you know, at a physical, it's like, knock your knees, take your pulse. Okay. You're good. It used to just be, you know, very impersonal. And I was like, I was asking her about, you know, how people respond and what people's, has she seen a shift in how people react to the mental health conversations or are people more open over time? Are they having healthy discussions about medication? I don't know. I'm I'm nosy and I care a lot about mental health. And I was just curious if like, as long as she's been practicing, if there, if she's seen a shift, at least generationally and, um, she was saying that what's so common is like everybody's so scared of medication changing who they are. And the most common question is kind of like, well, who will I be on medication as if it's like a bad thing? Like, what's it going to do to me? And she's like, the question needs to be like, who could I be if if not burdened by anxiety or depression, et cetera? Like, I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting and like an important thing to share because I thought I hadn't thought of it like that, I guess. And um, I don't know. And I was just really annoyed with how middle, a million little things handled that discussion. It just kind of, he, the guy, the I forget his name. Um, was it Roman? Was so vehemently opposed to taking the medication. His dad was so opposed to it. He was so ashamed of it. He was like determined to get off of them and acted like he felt so different. I'm like, honestly, m- most people like that I know don't even notice a tangible difference. And it's just slow over time, a cloud lifting and you, you feeling like you have more control over your mood and you're able to see outlooks and your future and situations way more clearly. And you're not putting your immediate spin on it based on your default setting. It's like, I I don't know. I just, I found it the whole thing frustrating that, that the show stresses me out to no end. It's like, can we get one episode where something's not happening? It's like, if there's, five minutes that go by and like nobody's dying, been adopted, gets cancer, business gets shut down, jumps off a building, whatever. Like we have one nice moment of somebody driving for four minutes and then they get into a car accident. And I'm like, how much can one group of friends handle? And how do they have time to go everywhere in person? Call them, text them. They're just like at each other's beck and call. And I love my friends, but you know, go to your own doctor's appointments. I'm just kidding. I just like wouldn't accompany my friends to any of these things unless they really needed me there. And if they needed me there, I don't assume they would want me, my husband, my daughter, my dog, like whole gangs there all the time. And everyone's just totally ignoring that, you know, Delilah and the best friend were hooking up the whole time and lying to everybody. Things are forgiven very quickly in that circle, but it's well written and I like it. I mean, I do like the show. Clearly, I'm, I'm very involved. But I, I think that the one disservice they're doing is in mental health, A, because of the premise of the show, which I guess I'm kind of spoiling now. So anyways, I'll, I'll stop now. But moving on, what's the next question? How did I get on that? Oh, Justin Bieber. Ugh, I hope I don't come across like I'm on a soapbox. I don't mean to be at all. If anything, my soapbox is like 
do what's best for you and don't listen to other people and don't be affected by stigmas and don't be affected by what your friends and family necessarily have to say. Like, get your own information from a licensed medical professional, from somebody that can diagnose your situation. And anyone else's opinion, frankly, is irrelevant. Just because somebody had experience, a bad experience with a medication or a situation doesn't mean you will. And it's just important that, I don't know, I think too, like people don't realize like you can keep stuff private. Like if, if you are trying to work through a situation in a manner that you're uncomfortable telling people, you don't have to tell people like omission is fine. And I don't think omission is always lying. I think you are absolutely allowed to handle things in the best way you see fit for your own health. And oftentimes that is that requires to not involve other people. So again, sorry, soapbox. Gosh, I am the worst. Oh, yeah. Quick thing about um, Carly Kloss. So she's been doing a lot of Project Runway, Project Runway promo. And I actually find I've found her to be very charming. And I think she's doing a great job. And I think she got some really good like, I don't know if it's practice, age, comfort, whatever. But she used to be a very awkward interviewer. And I think she's really strong now. And she was so charming on Watch What Happens Live. And it was so funny when she made Andy that butter dish that he dropped. Um, but what was interesting is Andy, the ep- at the beginning of the episode, the, the live episode, he said something like, I feel like it's blank being here with you because you're from my hometown and Bravo, uh, Project Runway's home is Bravo. The, the word I would have normally thought he would be saying would be like Beshert or uh, Kismet or what, like a, it's, I think it was like a word meaning like destiny or fate in Yiddish. And Carly goes, Andy, you're going to need to translate for us. And I thought, that's interesting. I thought she converted to Judaism. I'm surprised she doesn't know like a Yiddish word. But what was funny is that in the after show, somebody called in and was like, did you convert to Judaism? And she was like, I joined the tribe and cheers. And then there was all these articles like Carly Claus confirms for the public first time publicly that she converted to Judaism. And I was like, it's just like, and then there was an article in the Daily Mail, like two days after that she didn't meet the Kushners for two, uh, six years because they didn't approve of her because she wasn't Jewish. And like, you guys know, I think there's so much about their relationship is odd. And I understand that they're Orthodox, but I find it strange. Like, you know, especially a family that's like a society family with so much wealth and that runs in prestigious circles. Like, they, would they really like turn their nose up at like a beautiful, kind supermodel that was willing to convert? I don't know. I just thought the whole thing was interesting. I thought, I don't know. And I'm not saying that somebody like, you know, that that after show call was planted because he like read it off a card. Um, but it's kind of seemed like it was something that they, you know, wanted him to ask because she hadn't publicly addressed it. But yeah, I guess she needs to uh, brush up on her Yiddish vocab. It's like my favorite. I love like chutzpah and mensch for a good Jewish boy. Like, I think that's the most perfect word. For just like a great guy. Like we all know, like he's just a great guy. Um, loves his mom. Nice to everybody. Like what a guy. And Mensch is like the perfect word to encompass that. Isn't there like an elf on a shelf Hanukkah edition called Mensch on a bench? <laughs> so cute. Anyway, I just got a gazing Etsy review. Par for the course. Oh my God, this is like, ugh, drives me absolutely insane. It's like, it's so fascinating that before talking to me, people's assumption is that I'm like trying to run a scam. I'm like, literally, I'll refund you in full. Like, it, would, do you really think somebody running a scam would offer to lose money on this order? 
I, I took a Uber to and from the post office, waited in line, scanned in one freaking package myself because I felt so bad. And it's just like not enough. And I don't know why I bend over backwards, but like, I honestly feel bad. And my postman and my zip code honestly sucks. And I don't charge shipping on these towels. So people don't complain because I know it's unpredictable. Like, I just, oh God, I, I don't even know. I, I swear my postal guy leaves stuff on his truck for days at a time, forgets and then scans it in. And then it looks like I just took it there and it drives me absolutely insane. And I can't do anything about it. And his supervisor doesn't care. And like, yeah, I could do UPS or FedEx, but like, it's not going to be $3 to ship. It's th that's such a more expensive service. And I don't do the kind of volume to where I can negotiate the level of discounting that would be worth it for the customer. That wouldn't jack up the prices that would affect sales. It's just, there's so much to it, guys. I'm not trying to complain, but if you do ever order for me and I, I like, I trust me, I know shipping is terrible and I'm a one woman shop right now. I'm not, I don't have anybody else working for me. And like, again, I have 12 jobs and I like literally work around the clock and I need to figure it out. And I like, don't want to stop doing Etsy stuff because it's like the core of what I do. And I, it's like fun, but the, the, the people yelling at me all the time is just, it's exhausting. And I have no interest in it anymore because I really like, I guess it's impossible to communicate your intentions and be like, no, I'm trying really hard. And I like lose money on this all the time. And I'm always refunding people because I feel horrible. And at the end of the day, people just like love to rage. And trust me, I like to leave a scathing Yelp review more than anybody else for mistreatment of customers. But like if somebody were groveling and offering to refund me and like doing everything in their power to get them information, I maybe wouldn't leave them one star. But I guess it's just wishful thinking. Just like consider any time you're being harsh with customer service people like at the other end is a human who's just trying to get through the day and they probably have nothing like they don't have it out for you and it's not personal because it, they don't personally know you it's just so frustrating to deal with people that are completely incapable of seeing for a second that this might have been an honest mistake on somebody's part and the worst part is when it wasn't mine but I have to take accountability for it and I have to lose money for it oh well guys I, it's funny, I just haven't lived in a different zip code and since I've had the shop in five years. So I've had the same like circulation of postal workers in the same local annex and I've had the same problems this whole time. It's absolutely maddening. Sorry. Tangent over. Okay, next question. How do I feel about John Mayer's career trajectory? He hasn't had a hit song in years, but more po he's more popular than ever. I can't decide how I feel. He's BFFs with Andy. What are your thoughts? Uh... I've actually, I'm trying to think if I've talked about him before. What's Patreon? Or, I don't remember. But yeah, no, I actually am a big John Mayer fan. But I'm not necessarily a big fan of his music, but I'm a big fan of his personality, which I know sounds weird. No, no not in the sec, like sexual napalm Playboy interview, Jessica Simpson, Jennifer Aniston, disrespectful to women era. But in the post Montana post, uh, you know, wearing knit dashikis and cowboy hats with long hair era, like. I think he did have a transformation. I think he did grow up. I think that just like we were talking about with Justin Bieber, it, it, when you can get anything in the world, it's like, I think you go a little crazy. I think he used to just stroll into parties and industry functions and have his pick of the litter and his head got big and he got way too removed from reality and like said some dumb stuff. But like, I think he's really smart and I think his, I love a sense of humor. I love current mood. I love, oh, I did talk about it on Patreon, how I love, I watch Current Mood. Um, 
And I just think that the way he frames things and the words he chooses are really interesting and poetic. And that's probably why he's a great songwriter. And um, I would love to see he and Dave Chappelle's show someday. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just uh, I don't know. I think he and Andy's friendship is sweet. I know like NT and some people have hinted at like them being lovers at one point, but I don't think that's true at all. I think they legitimately are just really close friends. I know John was at Andy's baby shower, but I think that's just because he likes to, you know, be in on the action. He was like pretending he didn't know what housewives were, which is so annoying because like any of us who love housewives like that, that, that was the event of a century. <laughs> but yeah, I think the, uh, it, it's like, I don't know. I am such a top 40, like superficial music lover. If somebody telling me somebody's good at guitar is like telling me somebody else is fluent in a language. I don't know. Like I can't really gauge the caliber of your skill, but I'll take your word for it. Like I gather he's a great musician. I heard the other day that he's like responsible for Apple making garage band, which is what I'm recording on right now. So obviously I'm thankful for that. He I guess gave them the idea that like, music production tools should be included in every Mac. So people have access to that sort of software to kind of hone in on a skill. And I, that's such a good idea. And so true, like to give more people access to music in a free way. Well, free meaning comes in with your computer, but yeah, I don't know. I just think that like, I, I, I've talked about before how it, what it bothers me that Taylor Swift stopped doing interviews because for me, the, the, the artist shrouded in mystery, just completely disinterests me like I, I I don't need to know anything salacious salacious about your family or, or even your romantic life like but I do want to know your, your thoughts and your feelings and what went into the music and your artistic process I want to hear more detail about your experiences as it relates to the song I want to hear how you feel about your fame and your career and your ups and downs like I I, I love I love that he opens up opens himself up in terms of just like talking about stuff and his life and his interests and, you know, movies and other music. And he has other artists on to, to feature that, you know, are kind of up and coming. And I don't know. I, I, I appreciate that he is putting himself on a, in, a, in a format where we can get to know him better outside of just his music. And if anything, that will make me like his music all the more. I also think that he's doing kind of an unconventional thing as it relates to album cycles and releasing like four song EPs instead of the traditional, like, I don't know, what is it? 12 to 15 song ones. Cause it's kind of true. Like, why do you have to spend all this time thinking through a concept and weaving all these songs together in some cohesive manner when they could be more relevant and timely in like pods of four. And then we get to enjoy your music more often, you know? And then you can kind of just like tour them all. I, I like that idea for somebody like him whose like eras aren't so marked by like a theme and a brand and aesthetic, like a Taylor Swift. But anyway, probably more than you wanted to know yes a fan music eh. a lot the, his his biggest songs are so overplayed i did cry hearing daughters last weekend because i went to see my cousin sing live and one of the people there sang daughters for her dad saying it was their song can't handle it but one time on i think it was on current mood he was talking about his uh strained relationship with your body is a wonderland because it's his like least complex song and it's what he's known for and it's what he will forever be tied to but he he's written and done so many other things that have depth and that he's more proud of and that are more musically sophisticated. And I'm like, that's kind of how I feel about doormats. Like when somebody introduces me, they're like, hey, this is Kate. She makes the mats. I'm like, oh, my God, that's like the least interesting thing I do, in my opinion. And it's the least reflective of like what my skill set or contribution, I hope, will be. And it's funny how you almost have a 
intense relationship with the thing that made you take off because that's the thing you'll always be associated with. Like, it makes me think differently about how uh, TV characters get so frustrated when they're typecast as, uh, you know, as Ross will like David Schwimmer will always be Ross. And like that sucks for him, but also Ross is iconic. And but now I'm kind of like, yeah, I can get how, you know, obviously it's cool to get residuals and be an icon. But if you actually care about your craft and want to go further, it's that must be incredibly frustrating that people just choose not to see you in a different light or choose to ignore your other work. But anyway, what is your favorite Real Housewives moment? Oh, I don't know. It's like I, the ones that first come to mind are kind of like the obvious ones. Your Scary Islands, your December Berkshires County, the first I made it nice. Those are both New York. I mean, I really anything with Sonia, like I just think she's so funny. I, I hated her when she first came on and like took over that parade from the the march from Alex and Simon as the cred marshal. And but like now I look back on her being like, you know, I used to hang out with Madonna and John John Kennedy all the time and like her talking about the south of France and her just being so stuck in her old life like she kind of is now but back then she made herself seem like like actual American royalty and was so pretentious and like do you remember the season with the pecking order and Cindy Barshop like I mean like I have a huge Latin following what you do like who are you why but it's just that's why I love characters like her that evolve and like ultimately you watch them become who they actually are on TV and shed themselves of the context that their life forced upon them with something about the the lens of a reality show like you just can't hide and then you watch her like moments like her dog Milos Milo Milo uh, the, the, she tries to throw his ashes into the East River and they blow back in her face and she eats some of them like that was like one of my favorite moments that was so unintentionally hilarious i mean from, from the brown eyes to the toaster oven or her like plunging a blackberry out of her toilet like even uh last year when she was like oh we're doing mocktails like so fun i'll have a mocktail too but just like with a little tequila like yeah totally like th those are the moments i love where she's being sincere that i'm like people can relate to that that's going to be a gif I don't know. It's uh, the tiara and glasses in bed of it all. Like last season, she just in bed with her reading glasses, with a remote covered in mail somehow. Like Charlie, what's his name? Mr. Buckets, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory's dad that never gets out of bed and has like bed sores. I don't know. It, it kind of eradicated a lot of the darkness with the bankruptcy and the pretentiousness in previous seasons. And that's why she's a perfect one to one on the likable crazy scale. Um, but anyway, I... I I guess I'm just I'm so partial to New York. I also love Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills had like a dark period, too, that I did struggle with. Um, even like people love the uh, infamous dinner party with Alison Dubois. And I do, too. But also like it made me a little uncomfortable because it was a little bit dark and having to do with like families. And um, I, I don't know. There's some territories I'm not even comfortable going to. But the stuff I like is kind of like I used to love O.C., um, like when Vicky thought it was the right time at uh, Tamara's <laughs> baptism at like a courtyard Marriott to tell everybody, you know, Vicky, like she felt like she was being nailed to the cross like Jesus. It's like, I don't know, there's a member of the clergy here. And, you know, you lying about cancer isn't necessarily a crucifixion, but, you know, good try. Don't think Jesus whooped it up at Andale's, but, you know, he loves us just the way we are, Vicky included. I also like one of my obsessions with Bravo is the difficulty they have of uh, using 
figures of speech and like common idioms, metaphors, similes. Jax is one of the worst offenders, but the housewives are, I mean, they're like, work ethnic everyone always says work work ethnic Uh, always says well then there's like making a mountain out of a whole mill from Ramona and she says like reggae instead of reggae or audacity instead of audacity like I love that stuff um what was it like Kelly Dodd like she's the puppet and everyone's the master or um there's another really good Ramona one oh kadoos (laughs) kadoos to all of us like instead of kudos uh, truly, it's uh, it, it, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make up that in her whole life, nobody ever told her it wasn't reggae. I don't know how often she listens to reggae music. I don't know how often Melissa Gorga sang Amazing Grace when she sang that saved a wench like me. Um, but, you know, uh, on a momentary basis, <laughs> I understand that you can uh, confuse these idioms. Um but yeah, I don't know. I love so many things about them. I feel like I never know how much to talk about the housewives because like so many other shows do and they do it better. But I love them, too. And I, I love a good Matrix. And um, yeah, I'm so over Lucy Lucy Applejuice that I can't even begin to go there. But anyway, I'm trying to move through questions. It's hard for me. I kind of like the stream of consciousness format better. I feel choppy when I'm going through questions. But let me go to the next one. I loved your episode about the Psalm documentary, Bold Yet Unassuming. Any tips for how to order wine or getting started with wine? I have trouble identifying what I do and don't like, and I always get nervous when it's up to me to order something, and half the time I don't even like what I ordered. Any help would be appreciated. Great, Q. Talk about wine all day. You know, the biggest thing at restaurants that people don't do enough is ask for a taste. If it's a wine by the glass, they have a bottle open, and they'll give you a taste before you order a glass. Wine by the glass is so box expensive. It's over the price that I pay at a grocery store for a bottle. Like I don't really go above eight ninety nine for like a day to day bottle, but a glass of wine I go up to fourteen. And I'm like, this is insane. And half the time it's like, not even a full pour. I don't like it that much. And I, I don't know. Even I forget to ask to taste it sometimes. But if you've never had it, definitely ask. You can try a couple. Sometimes I'll try three. It's whatever. They just give you tiny sips. And half the time I'm like, thank God I didn't get that. Sometimes there's too much Italian funk. Sometimes there's too much spice in a Malbec. You just, you you never know. It it really depends on the bottle and the vintage and the grape and the region. And wine is so complicated, but the only thing that really matters is do you like it or do you not? As it relates to a bottle, um, you're really not supposed to order the wine until you order the food. And that's what's so weird about restaurants is that theoretically, the, the way food and wine affect your taste buds on like a chemical level is so important in terms of how both your food tastes and how the food makes the wine taste. I went to a tasting with a sommelier who said that pairing your food, your wine incorrectly with your food is essentially like pouring a a ketchup on a filet. And I, I that like shook me to my core because I love a filet and I love ketchup, but not together. And it just made me rethink everything. So uh, sometimes I like to start out with a cocktail, Prosecco, something light at the beginning of a meal, you know, palate cleanser, and then get a heavier, bolder wine with my meal. But again, that doesn't help your question. I'm just talking. Um, basically, I think all you can do is, is as you try wines at people's houses or at restaurants, uh, you're, you buy them yourself, write them down. There's an app called um, Vivino that's really good. It has most like it has so many wines however uh, small of a producer they are it 
you can like hold up a, even if you're at like a wine tasting or you're at, you know, a Binnie's or something, total wine, and you like something, but you don't want to take it home. You can take a picture of the bottle and it automatically will populate the information. It usually recognizes the label. All the wines have reviews. So sometimes when you can't do a tasting, you can quickly browse. And if it's like one star across the board, you know better, or maybe the 2015 is better than the 2016. So I think as it goes with anything that's complicated and hard to remember, right, making a note of it's important so you can go back to it. And then if you're in a pickle and people are like, hey, can you just order it? I don't know anything about wine. You like don't want to disappoint everybody. You can at least be like, oh, I know that I like GSMs or I know I like Cote de Rhone Rosés. I know that I like a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, whatever it may be. Um, but also, I feel like unless you're in, you know, an outstanding financial situation, most of us are like ordering the second or third cheapest bottle of wine. And that's usually important because like the cheapest bottle of wine is going to have the biggest markup because there's just such a high baseline markup of restaurant wine, period, that the you're getting the least bang for your buck with like the the number one cheapest wine but like third or fourth cheapest you're probably fine because the margin is a little more narrow but that's another example of like if you have a quick app you can look at if you're not embarrassed to like glance at your phone um you can see the retail value of the wine too which really helps frame it in my mind i'm like oh my God, I'm about to drop $60 on a bottle I can get for $12.99 at Kroger. That's insane. Sometimes there's not as much strategy to it. And I think the other thing you have to remember is like ordering a bottle for the table anymore. I don't think restaurants actually are, there's any benefit to cost benefit to getting a bottle over like four or five individual glasses, like for everyone at the table. So it's everyone should sometimes just get what they want and enjoy it and order it by the glass. And there's no cost savings. So the pressure of finding something that like six people like can be really daunting. Even I hate it because I feel like I like wine so much. People think I know a lot about wine. So I always get chosen to do that. But really, it's it, it, it's so subjective and it's very hard to know, especially when everybody's eating something different. And um, that's why I like to have like a few safety wines that most people like, whether it's like a Willamette Valley Pinot or, uh, you know, a Napa Cab or Zin with your meal that can, you know, be medium bodied, but still pack enough punch to pair well with food. I, I think where it gets tricky is when you get into like Ital a lot, some Italian wines, Chianti's, Barolo, Barbera's, Barbaresco's, Brunello's, all the bees are like such outstanding wines from a high quality producer, but they, they're funky. They can have really funky acidic tastes that are not for everybody. French wines uh, can be really heavy, really bold, like a Bordeaux. They, they can be very dry and very much not for everybody. And I, I mean, I literally never order Bordeaux. If I'm going to order a French wine, it's going to be a GSM from Cote du Rhone, which means uh, Grenache, Syrah, Montverdre, I believe. Um, it's a blend. I love a blend. I'm very much having a blend moment right now. I love a, a Cab Franc for like a heavier, funkier, um, uh, almost leathery wine with dinner. Uh, uh, I don't know. It, 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 you just kind of have to play around and you have to go easy on yourself. And like, it doesn't matter if somebody thinks it's peppery and you think it's sweet or somebody thinks it's tannic and you're like, what the hell is that? Um, but I mean, basically the biggest traits that I think are helpful to understand, at least like what it means when you taste it is... Um, our body, sweetness, uh, level of tannins, um, acidity, and alcohol. Because like body, you know, when you hear light-bodied or full-bodied, it's kind of like identifying the difference in skim or whole milk. Uh, 
but body isn't a scientific term. It's just kind of a way to categorize the wine by the intensity level from lightest to richest. So I literally kind of gauge that with the, the, the like heaviness I feel in my mouth or like the intensity of the, the taste or I don't know. There, body is kind of a weird amalgam of tannins and sweetness and acidity and alcohol and carbonation and all that stuff. But really just think about how in your mouth a whole milk versus a skim milk would feel and kind of just get gauging that heaviness and there you have light or medium or full bodied sweetness is pretty obvious with the residual sugar the unfermented grape sugars that are left in the wine after the fermentation has completed is going to result in how sweet the wine is so this for me becomes the most in handy when trying champagnes um, I get very confused with like brute versus dry versus extra brute versus demi sec or whatever. But dry is sweeter than brute. That's like the only thing you need to remember. So on the spectrum from dry to extra brute, dry would be sweetest, extra dry next, then brute, then extra brute, which is going to be like bone dry. So just a heads up, sometimes I think brute is drier than dry, but it's actually not. Um, so I think that helps at times. And when it comes to tannins, it's kind of um, the, the bitterness of the wine. Uh, it's from the, the grape skins and the seeds, and they're also in like the wood barrels. And in tasting tannin, it's kind of like, um, a, like a drying sensation. It's kind of like when your lips stick to your teeth. And the like astringency, it, it kind of depends, the, the way of a tannic wine would be described kind of depends on how bitter it tastes and then how long that bitterness lasts after swallowing. And like, I don't know. See, it's like hard. It's kind of hard to explain these things because like, I don't even know that much about it, but I've just I've like actively tried to retain more of this information over time. But you know, when you see like elite daily or board Panda or Upworthy or whatever viral Nova <laughs> clickbait articles about it's like studies show that drinking garbage tons of wine is great for your health and you'll live forever. And you to share it with all your friends. And it's like a sample size of two and it makes zero sense. Um, the reason there's any like merit to the pros of wine drinking, or one of the reasons is that um, there's elements of tannins that inhibit cholesterol there's um, elements of like the tannins and oak barrels that they've found in like petri dishes to stop cancer cells from expanding. And, and the, the wine is so dynamic and there's so many different factors that inevitably you isolate some of these factors and do tests on them. You know, there, there, there's bound to be some health benefits somewhere. I mean, wine is as is, is old as they come. It's uh, how I rationalize. Like, I love wine so much and I love Italy so much and I love like... I don't know. My happy place is not hiking, biking, playing sports, live, laugh, love, verb. It's what you do. It's like coffee, wine, a deep talk over a four hour dinner. Maybe I cry once. It's it's croissants. It's cobblestone alleys. It's walking in and out of shops. It's people watching. It's uh, cozy spaces with twinkle lights. I My happy place just really involves a lot of things that are kind of wine centric and everyone I've met throughout my travels that's especially that are European it's just such a staple of their diet I like the taste so much 
that when I have a glass with dinner on like a Tuesday, I'm like, do I need this? And then I feel bad. And then I'm like, one time Greg and I were in um, Croatia and he took me on a wine tour and it ended at this guy's house that was a 18th. That's like, it's not a mistake. 18, 18th generation winemaker. He made us a meal at his family's like farmhouse. We were like literally in a shed it was so nice and wine was his life and he does you know wing to wing he he picks he bottles he stores he does the cashier he does the tastings like he is running the whole gamut of the operation and he told us that per person in his household and like he lives they like kind of all his whole family lives in this uh, uh kind of vineyard that per household each of them probably has a bottle of wine a day so they ship off maybe like an eighth of the wine they produce, but the rest is just to like sustain his family for the year. But wine is so important to them. And he takes such pride in making a high quality item for his family that they enjoy every day and have their best conversations over and da da. And he's like, our tolerances are so high. Like none of us are alcoholics. It's just like culturally what we've always done. I've drank wine since I was eight. I, it just made me see it so differently I'm, in terms of like, well, obviously like alcoholism and drinking problems are very, very real and very important to be aware of but you know when you hear somebody's been drinking since they were eight it was never made exclusive it was never to get drunk it's everything's about you know family and i don't know i just thought it was like sweet and interesting but like holy crap it's a ton of wine um but also that when you ever you watch the sommelier documentaries like psalm three the amount of wine one of the judges drinks is like shocking that he's still alive so it just makes me think like does it just totally depend on the person or is it actually, you know, not as bad for us as we might be thinking? I mean, calorically, sure, you betcha. But anyway, I don't know what, like, I've been talking about wine for 15 minutes. This isn't a wine episode. I can do one if you want one, but I don't think anybody cares to hear that. Um, the only thing I've left out is acidity and alcohol. But yeah, so you have body, you have sweetness. You have the level of tannin, you have acidity. Obviously, like, Think about a lemon. Think about lemonade. You're puckering. You're eating a Sour Patch Kid in your cheeks. You feel like a tingling sensation. Like, that's acidity. That's when you're, like, bright, tart, zesty, whatever. And then, like, on the other end of being super basic, that's going to be milk, water, yogurt. Uh, you know, we, we understand pH, right? And then as it relates to alcohol, you know, the more alcohol, the less residual sugar. The sweeter wines have less alcohol in them. Your Moscatos, your sweet whites, your... Your moderate to dry wines are like going to be 14% ABV. Then it probably goes down to like 11% for lower dry wines. And then your sweet whites are probably going to be like 7, 8% ABV. Like I think like a beer is what, five? And then like a shandy is like three to four or like a hard alcohol or like a hard lemonade or something. I don't know. I really shouldn't speak out of turn. I, I think those are like general, uh, you know, rules of thumb. But I, I like a cool 13, 14 if I'm feeling fancy. And when you see people like swirl their wine and look at the legs or look at the tears, that's that's just alcohol. That's viscosity. That's um, just kind of helping you understand what is high alcohol or higher sugar or both. And uh, the tears indicate, well, more tears is more alcohol, basically. It's kind of the long and short of that. Very oversimplified version of that. I hope one day all of us can have wine together. That would be a delight. Anywho. Next question. Uh, 20 minutes later. I'm not going to get through all these. <laughs> it's actually probably good that I had a glass of wine before this. What? <laughs> um, 
what do you do? Well, first of all, I should say, I like, you know how on podcasts they're like, they'll read the whole email. They'll be like, hey, girl, love your work. You're the most perfect fairy princess I've ever met. You're beautiful and smart and thoughtful. And I love your podcast and worship the ground you walk on. Anyway, what's your favorite eyeliner? It's like, did you need to read that intro? It's very um, self-indulgent. Anyway, so I just separate out the question and I leave people anonymous because I don't know. Like, do you, do you I, I don't know. If you want me to say your name, tell me. Um, okay, this person asks, what do you do when you hate someone your best friend is dating? I think she likes the idea of him and is tired of being single, but he gives me bad vibes and is kind of rude to our friend group. I feel bad about not being honest with her, but I don't want her to get mad at me for giving her my opinion either. What's the best thing to do? I feel like you've talked about this before. Okay, this is layered. <laughs> First of all, you, I think it's important. I think a lot of times friends feel this like need to champion their best friends and to defend their honor and think that they know better than the person themselves does about what they need. And I understand that friendships feel that strong, especially when you're young. Um, but you have to let people live their own life and make their own decisions. And usually these things... These things can end really badly if you overly insert yourself. I think you have to remember that you can never know the breadth and the depth of somebody else's relationship. There, there could be other things going on you don't know about. They, they might be perfect together behind closed doors. There's, there are social dynamics that can make somebody appear in a different light when you meet them in a social situation. And like, I think as a best friend, you're often putting a microscope on the person. So first and foremost, give people the benefit of the doubt. If you decide you don't like somebody from one interaction, try not to carry that into every interaction. Just like hate the person and like fulfill your own narrative. Cause I think people do that too. I've seen a lot of this happen in my day. Um, I think something that friends can do that's a total disservice to their friends in relationships is, is right off the guy. If he's not what Kel my sister Kelly and I call a fun Bobby. And a fun Bobby is the life of the party. They're a brilliant conversationalist. They ask follow-up questions. They compliment you and your friends. They're, they're slick and they're suave. They buy you drinks. And like those guys are great. And they're, they're, they serve a purpose. And of course, everybody wants a dude who's great with their friends. But like also some people are reserved and some people like find it very intimidating to be in a large group of existing friends who like talk over one another. And some people are onions or need to warm up to people and like, some people like to listen. And I just think you, before reaching a conclusion about how you perceive the person, just ask yourself uh, beyond what you think of the interaction. Like, is my friend happy? Is he adding more to her life than he is taking away from it? Is, is, she, is she getting her needs met against the criteria she herself identified as her needs and not what you arbitrarily think she deserves? I think... I think, well, I mean, obviously I should caveat in the event there's ever like serious mistreatment or verbal abuse or like anything shady going on. Oh my God, different story. Step in like there, there's such a fine line between like, I don't like him. He's not that fun. He didn't buy us drinks. He didn't compliment us. He's kind of standoffish. Like, like all that stuff doesn't matter. Their relationship matters so much more than your like, you know, superficial social interactions. But if you think there's something weird going on, if she's not opening up, if there's something being hidden, like absolutely intervene. But in most cases, in most common cases, it's 
the more important thing than shoving your opinion down somebody's throat is to ask questions when you're not sure where they stand or you're worried they're she's not in it for the right reasons or like you said um is likes the idea of him or whatever did she say that to you or are you inferring that like i think sometimes people get so caught up in their own opinion that it becomes their truth and i'm like did that was that ever spoken or is that implied um and i think you just have to ask questions and you have to listen and you can't just force your opinion on people that aren't ready for it and that's where friendships get tarnished and i think with delicate topics like relationships you have to remember to be so careful because your two cents can and will be held against you if they stay together and you were wrong. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I just feel like I remember every single person that gave me terrible unsolicited advice about my relationship. And like none of those people are still with those people that they thought they were perfect with and they thought met their standards. And like, I knew what was best for me the whole time. And, and you should trust that your friend does too. And I am the right person for me isn't the right person for everybody else. And I just would always, I don't know, like Greg and I do stay in more and we are more reserved, but we have so much fun together. And like, we've always been a really good match. And I feel like when I was younger and I was in, in friendships where people were more involved in my life, I felt this pressure to constantly be like pleasing my friends about my relationship. But I mean, like, I don't, it was never for anything that bad or serious. Like, obviously, if your friends are intervening and like something serious is going wrong, you need to listen. But I just remember like my friends, some of my friends or like past roommates would spend like seven nights a week with their significant other. And I never did like with whoever I was dating. I all I'm like doing my own thing, traveling and working on the weekdays. And sometimes it would get in my head like, oh, is there something wrong with us? Because we don't spend every single night of the week together or I think this can happen too sometimes with like gifts or trips or romantic gestures, birthdays, Valentine's days, etc. Some people are really good at giving gifts and some people are going to get insane jewelry or experiences or get taken to a spa day or whatever. I, I think your perception of gift, gifts kind of depends on how you were brought up and it depends what your love language is. I am not great at gifts. I don't send people gifts. I send a card if I remember more often it's a voicemail on their birthday. I don't love them any less than the next person. It's just not how I like express myself. I'll sit you down and have like a monologue about how great you are. And I'll write you a letter that's like so intense. Sometimes I get a little nervous when I send it in the mailbox. I want people to know how much they mean to me. But I'm a words of affirmation giver and I'm a recipient. That's uh, that's like 100% what I need to feel loved. And I think some people absolutely panic if they don't get exactly what they want for their birthday, for Christmas, for Valentine's Day or whatever, and they overstate its importance on how the person feels about them. And I just think that's insane too. And I, I like, should they ignore holidays or birthdays that are important to you? No, you have to meet in the middle. But if certain people don't love their birthday or don't love Valentine's Day, it's not that they're wrong and you're right. It's that you meet in the middle and you set your expectations because for every holiday that they're not as obsessed with as you are, I guarantee that there's a better quality that they have that's than somebody else who's, you know, showering somebody in gifts. The gift shower is just a more physical, tangible, obvious, great trait. I mean, hey, if you have that good for you, 
but I can't ask that from my spouse when I don't even do that for him. <laughs> and I don't want to do that for him. It's too stressful. It's very hard to buy gifts for people. And uh, so now my specialty is like scavenger hunts in home escape rooms, elaborate cards that make fun of his favorite TV shows. You know, normal, normal wife stuff. <laughs> Takes me way too long to answer these questions. But anyway, your question was about hating your friend's boyfriend. And it's it's hard without context, because if if he's like a monster, I'm going to feel horrible for like kind of defending your friend's relationship. But like, I don't know. Typically, I just think people are really hard on their friends, significant others. And the bottom line is their happiness is all that matters. And if you want to gauge that instead of telling someone they're happy or they're not happy, ask them, ask them questions, have them reach their own conclusion. The most important thing you can do when trying to gauge the pulse of any situation is to not go in guns blazing with what you think is going on and to sit down and ask what's going on. And by talking about it and by having their thoughts materialize, the person makes up their own mind. And I think that like, inevitably, when you're being kind of asked about a topic you're uncomfortable talking about, you realize it and the other person realizes it. And that's kind of a great barometer too. But Sometimes you articulate thoughts you didn't know you had. And sometimes in seeing somebody's re reaction, you kind of are like, yeah, I already knew this, but that confirms it. However, if somebody comes in telling you what they think before you have the chance to like explain, you're so turned off and you'll close off and you'll shut down and you'll just lean further into your decision because you're, you feel disrespected. And I mean, I, I don't know. I think we've all experienced a case where we've tried to like do something that we think is going to help a friend, but it just makes them distance themselves from us. It's kind of like if you torture somebody about never being around anymore or not hanging out or not calling you back there, it's going to take that much longer to hang out or have them call you back because there's this just weird um, aspect of making somebody feel guilty that makes them want to distance themselves from you because friendships ebb and flow. Things go on in life. You're busier sometimes than others. You're having you're in a good place sometimes than others. Sometimes catching up on the phone for hours is hard for somebody who's having a difficult time. You know, some I just think that friendship should be about wanting the best for the other person, giving them the benefit of the doubt, not always making it about you, not always taking everything personally, understanding that their your relationship and your level of closeness will ebb and flow and if somebody else is in a new relationship and you're not seeing them as much, you'd probably do the exact same thing. Give everybody their time and don't hold it against them if they're unable to be the friend that you need them to be right at that moment. There's a difference between like a toxic relationship and one that just, you know, needs some pliability for the more transitional complex phases of life. And I know that I... When I, in like my mid 20s, I was like, you know, I'm going to stop putting so much time and effort into friendships that feel like there are too many requirements um, of what it means to be a good friend, of how often I need to call or what I need to send or how good of a bridesmaid I need to be or like whatever it is. I just think the best friendships don't have requirements. You pick up where you left off. Your communication is clear and it's honest and it doesn't have an agenda. And if you can't talk or having a tough time or it's been a while since you've talked, just tell them exactly why and they should understand. And I just am, I don't know. I've never been here for people that think that they're owed something by their friends and that it all is about them. 
I mean, it's kind of like what Taylor Swift said. Like, there's difference between differences between friendships, situationships, and it it doesn't make your friendship any less special uh, than it was in real time when that friendship was serving the place you were in your life. But like, it's okay if people grow apart. Sometimes you come back together. Sometimes you don't. It's okay if you kind of grow out of what the other person needs. And when it starts to feel like an obligation, it's a problem because that's going to turn into resentment. And you know what they say? And I wholeheartedly believe you can't, you can't go back from resentment, but anyway, need to move on. Um, I'll do maybe one or two more, but I'll try to be quick. The next one goes into the last one though. So I kind of gave you my two cents. This person said, how do you feel about being a bridesmaid and spending thousands of dollars on bachelorette parties, on showers, on the wedding, on your dress, da, da, da. I want to celebrate my friends, but it's getting to a point where I can't afford it. And I feel like people are asking way too much of me. And when I get married, I don't think I'm going to be doing the same help. Um, yeah, I mean, I honestly think this is something everybody deals with. It's 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 interesting. I didn't have bridesmaids because I had a destination wedding. And I am of the opinion that if it, if you're getting married in a place that is going to cost somebody a lot of money to get to. There's a barrier to entry, like cost wise, that you should never mandate their attendance. Don't put somebody in a compromising financial situation just to like stand at the altar with you. Um, I understand you want the pictures, but in like the grand scheme of life, you know, you'll survive if one of your friends doesn't make it to your wedding. Um, but that said, the, the non-negotiable people that you would, you would that would be such a glaring uh, absence from your wedding if you do destination, obviously clear it with them first. That's what we did. But, you know, it's hard because it's such an honor to be a bridesmaid and like you want to celebrate your friends. But I certainly understand in recent years how it's how it's changed in terms of my financial situation. And, you know, if you're dealing with a finite level of disposable income and you want a vacation, too, and do fun things and go see your family, it's tough when the majority of that budget is consumed by all of the plane tickets and, and gifts and whatnot. But that said, like, and I know maybe I'm being idealistic and maybe I just am not, I don't know, maybe I'm reclusive, but I just think that like, if, if you're close enough, so is somebody to be their bridesmaid. And at the, when they ask you at the very beginning, if you're like, listen, I am trying to save more. I'm having a tough time. I am going to be the, like, I am going to show up with bells on for absolutely everything that I can. But please know if I don't come to something, it's not because I don't love you or want to celebrate you. And know that I'm like dying inside and with FOMO and jealousy of everybody that's there. But I may not be able to swing every single function. And I just want to make sure that's okay with you. Like, if somebody said that to you, would you ever care? I'd be like, oh my God, no. Like, I, I, I just don't want people attending my stuff who don't want to be there. Or who, if there's an ounce of them that feels obligated. Like, why anybody wants to force anybody into doing anything is so weird and sad to me. I'm not a person that like, cares about something on principle I care if the actual meaning behind it's there and if you show up on principle but hate every minute of it and like badmouth me to your friends and feel like I didn't give you a choice and whatever like by not coming you're doing me a favor I don't want that vibe that energy that in my functions anyway so I don't know it's one of those things where you like it's so kind and it's so amazing when people you're an important enough staple in people's lives to be asked to do that and I don't think that sentiment should be lost whatsoever but I do think that at the beginning if you're already feeling uncomfortable draw a boundary and give them the option to be like 
no, I really want somebody that's going to like spearhead all these things and that has the time and resources to be able to be like super bridesmaid, then, you know, do a reading, be an usher. I don't know. But the other part of that too is like, I've also heard horror stories of like, I think sometimes bridal parties are hard because everybody is individually close to the bride, but for a different reason and from a different point in life. And when you have like, you know, two friends from childhood, three from college, two from work, some sisters or sister-in-laws in there, it, the the difficulty lies in the, all of the different personalities tr- that have never met probably trying to coordinate stuff over email and not being able to convey tone and a lot of people already feeling resentful about all the stuff they have to do and then it just creates this like storm of awkwardness and passive aggression in emails and I actually like I I really have not been in one of these situations but I know a lot of horror stories about this and I think what you have to remember is even though like you don't want the bridal party to hate you you can't make decisions for appeasing them and what matters is that your relationship with the bride at the end of the day because you're never gonna have to interact or see the the rest of those people and just making sure the friendship that matters is intact the person that wants you standing with them that that's that's really what you need to focus on and instead of addressing everything with the bridal party in those emails, usually the bride's left off. Just, I don't know, tackle any issues you have directly with the bride. I think people are sometimes too worried about um, like bothering brides or whatever. And like, yeah, don't, you know, maybe the week of the wedding, but like, it's so stupid. Brides are people. Brides have like jobs. Brides have a ton of other things to do besides their wedding. And the notion of people not bothering you is so strange. And I remember like leading up to my wedding, I was like, I haven't talked to any of my friends in weeks. Like, what, what are people up to? But they didn't want to bother me. <laughs> but sometimes you need, like, the support. And sometimes instead of, like, having something blow up, you'd rather somebody just tell you directly. Um, actually, with my bachelorette party, my friends won't care because I told them this. Uh, like, I wasn't on the email about it. And um, I was, like, pretty strictly, like, I'm going to plan it. No games. Uh, like, I've, I know people want to, like, surprise you and stuff. And that's so sweet. But like, this is what I'm comfortable with. And I don't want anybody to feel pressure to plan it and whatever. But of course, inevitably, there's an email chain that the bride is left off of where you like talk about fun stuff. And um, a couple of my friends who are like, more into, you know, outdoorsy stuff. were like, Oh, I've always wanted to, like, hike Red Rock or whatever. Our, Our my bachelorette was in Vegas. So we went to see Celine one night and Brittany the other night. And in between, I just wanted to like eat and sit and hang out with people. Um, but there's like a, a group that kind of wanted to venture outside of Vegas and they like separately. Um, I think like two or three different people that were going reached out to me. They're like, I just want to give you a heads up. Like there's like some people want to go outside and I know you don't like that. So like permission to put the kibosh on Red Rock. And I was like, yes, permission to put the kibosh. And then at the party, I was like, guys, do you honestly think that I would have ever been excited to like put on shorts <laughs> and like sneaker? I, I didn't even bring sneakers. I, I was laughing so hard because I'm but but that's what you have to do. It's like I'm, I you can I could have been like, oh, my God, you don't know me at all. I hate to hike. But really, I was like, no, it's not about that. It's about People being like, oh, I'm already going to this location. I've wanted to do this thing. People are like, anyone have ideas? And I'm throwing out an idea. So instead of taking it personally, somebody just being like, oh, no, I don't think that's their thing. Like, okay, like conversation over. Whereas it could have been like a much bigger back and forth. So I don't know. I just appreciated my confidence on the inside, looking out for my best interest. Um, But anyway, that's, I think, 
again, another long-winded answer, but, and I know I've said this on another podcast, but aside from the bridesmaid part, like bride, be cool. Don't be all uncool. Uh, Like, yes, a wedding is stressful in so many different forms, but like, trust me when I say you want your friends on your side for that day and not hating you, not being annoyed with you, not feeling like you're asking too much of them. Life is not keeping score just because one person asks you for a lot at their wedding doesn't mean you have to ask a lot of them. And if somebody's having financial trouble or they have to work or like, I don't know, support themselves or they have children, like just be cool. Give them the benefit of the doubt. If they can't come, it's not personal. Like if you are that close to them that they're in your bridal party and you honestly think that they don't want to be there, that's weird. And like check yourself and who you picked for, for the bridal party. And if you pick somebody out of obligation, then why are you mad they're not there anyway? Because do you really care? I, I just do not get how you can call yourself a best friend without giving somebody the benefit of the doubt and understanding that they're doing the best they can with the cards they're dealt and hope that they're being honest with you. And if they're not, that's a whole other thing that you need to figure out. But again, in romantic relationships, in friendships, in familial relationships, I think that things go wrong when you stop seeing the best in someone and when you're looking for things to be mad about. And yeah, I'll stop there. Um, and the last question, well, not, I actually, I think I have like maybe five or six more, but some of them I already addressed about pop culture this week. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, I like this question. Um, cause it kind of goes with the, what we were talking about with Justin Bieber and whatnot. You've mentioned before that you started the podcast and doing Instagram stories as an outlet when you were having a hard time. Any advice for getting through the bad days slash tough times? Um, yes, 100%. I, like I said earlier, if, if I'm kind of down, there is a level of down where I can channel the energy creatively and I have some of my highest output. But it, it totally wavers. And this podcast was a kind of a way for me to connect. Insta stories were a way for me to connect. Uh, I realized that a big part of my feeling so down was in feeling isolated, was in feeling like I didn't have, you know, I didn't have coworkers suddenly. And I just really wasn't connecting with people. And I didn't have a lot of friends here. And so this was kind of what I was going to try to do to see if I could connect more in that even if I wasn't hearing back from people, just kind of like the exertion of my thoughts and my feelings and my interests, even the fact that I had to kind of lean more into my interest in order to do this, the fact that there was a schedule, I had to teach myself how to record and edit and about mics. And it, it was some, I just think you really need something to focus on. I love to start a new hobby or a like start writing a book or start learning a new trade, go to a class, go to an improv class. I mean, I, I just... I think that um, distraction is really important when you're going through a difficult time. And I think that the more you can use your experience to turn it into something positive, then everything will seem more purposeful and it you won't feel like such a victim of circumstance. And like, I mean, this is such a dumb example, but when I like was resenting social media and just scrolling through and being like, these people suck. Like it's so vapid. This isn't fun. And I wrote twinkle, twinkle, social media started like make fun of them. Um, it was the first and only book that I've ever actually sold to someone like it, because there was such passion behind it. I was able to like, I wrote it in like a day. 
So I, I just think you never know what the product is going to be of you doing something creative with your downtime. I mean, literally and figuratively. Um, but also my other piece of advice is I think that I, I could wax poetic about the broader things you should focus on to see your way out of a tunnel. But I, I found that when you're just stringing together your minutes, your hours, your days, sometimes the best you can do is interject even the smallest amounts of joy into your routine. And that's why I love podcasts and TV shows and things that keep me laughing and upbeat. And like I am in good company instead of in my own head. So never feel guilty about zoning out to something that puts you at ease when you're feeling down. Like I used to do this with friends with Parks and Rec, 30 Rock. I don't know, The Office, Gilmore Girls. I, now my background show is uh, Shed's Creek. I mean, these are shows I've seen a million times, but the characters are like old friends. And I don't know, it's just soothing. So I think little things like that that you love that make you not as... Uh, I, I, whatever takes you out of your own head for a minute, I do think is important. And I'd love to like, give you other examples of like joyful things like exercise or cooking or I don't know calling a friend but honestly when I'm like in a horrible mood and I just need to smile and like snap out of it I watch YouTube videos like a 15 year old boy but some some like there are some things that just you can't not laugh it's like on a roller coaster you can't not smile I I my favorites are like game show bloopers <laughs> because like family feud and stuff, you just when people say the first thing that comes to their mind about a category and it's so often like pervy or weird or so wrong and it makes me laugh so hard. And like news bloopers are my favorite thing in the entire world. I, I mean, example would be like the one of that couple who's running in the snow and the news reporter's like, why are you running in the snow? And then they give this really pretentious fitnessy answer and they're like, oh, haven't you heard? Snow is perfect for running, especially a dry snow where your feet don't get wet. And it's very low impact on your joints. Like, you should be running. And then when they jog away, the girl that was being so pretentious completely wipes out. And it's it's perfect. It's amazing. I can watch it a million times. Um, I also like uh, compilations of um, SNL characters who are, or who are breaking during their skits. Like, they are trying not to laugh. People trying not to laugh makes me laugh so hard. My favorite is like the Bill Hader compilations of him trying to do the Californians or Stefan uh, or like Ryan Gosling during the alien abduction makes. I mean, it, it's it's so good. Um, oh, I also love to watch choreographed bridesmaid dances. <laughs> There's one specifically where if you follow me for a while, you know how much I'm obsessed with it. Um, in fact, I cut the video apart and tried to submit it to like Jiffy or whatever, and I can't always find the gifs when i'm looking for them um but there's one where a bride makes her like super pregnant friend crawl on the floor to jason derulo swallow and it makes my stomach hurt every time i think it's so funny and um even just like stupid things like john travolta's earnest delivery of adele dazim instead of adina menzel makes me laugh so hard um when the oscar nominees were being announced a few years ago and the lady who was um announcing them said this really complicated eastern european name with like no vowels flawlessly and then the next guy's name is dick pope and she says dick poop and it's so stupid but the contrast with the previous name the fact that this guy like the one time in his life it was from kind of a you know it wasn't like a 
best actor, best director was like a smaller category, but like that's his big moment. His name literally can't be messed up. She said the most complicated name before it and says Dick Poop. It's like, what? It's so stupid, but it makes me laugh so hard. And my sense of humor isn't even slapsticky or like uh, somebody doing any of those things in a scripted comedy wouldn't make me laugh. But awkward human experiences just kill me and make me feel better when I'm feeling low because I can't imagine feeling any lower than those people doing things publicly embarrassing. Local news is just a true gift. It really is. But anyway, guys, I think I should wrap it up. Um, Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am actually off to a bachelorette party for a delightful friend who has been breezy as hell. Great example of of a cool bride. So I'm very excited to see a bunch of my college friends. And shout out to Jasmine, my friend who's getting married in May. She is a doll and came to Italy and my bachelorette party. And has always been such a good friend that's shown up for me. And I think that's what it, what matters. It's like, like I said, it's not about keeping score, but it's, it is about reciprocating for people that show up for you. And like the, the, but the thing is that requires no thought, you know, like there's people you just want to like go to their stuff and celebrate them. And if it feels any other way, then, you know, reevaluate, but I'm excited because I, I get to see all of my college friends and, you know, leave Greg and tugboat to have a boys weekend. Um, I used to board him every time I left town, but now it's fun. Now that he's a little bit older and a little less crazy, I leave him and Greg alone together. And it's just so funny because I'll get like a million texts uh, like about the things he's doing. And I'm like, yeah, that's normal. He's like, he's sitting on my laptop keyboard. What do I do? I'm like, oh, well, you know, he's asleep. Just go do something else. That's what I do. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But yeah. And in a little bit, I'm going to, uh, Front the runway in Gold Coast. If you live in Chicago, it's the best. I've been doing the unlimited that I started doing when I went on my book tour and needed to look like a million bucks despite having a writer's budget. And I've realized even more so than the clothes now, I'm obsessed with it for the purses and the coats and the jewelry, like stuff I really can't buy. I'm not going to buy a $1,500 purse. I'm going to get sick of it. And what's so funny too is in renting some of these like really nice bags, I realized that after a few weeks of usage, I'm it, it's my vision's used to it. It's not special anymore. And I do want to trade it out. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm relieved I didn't go buy something. I think if you're going to, if you buy like a staple bag, you know, you'll love forever. Like I totally understand that. But with, you know, experimenting with like colors and styles and sizes, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I think if you live in a city where they have the brick and mortars, I know they have one in New York. I'm pretty sure they have one in San Francisco, Chicago, New York. I think there's one in L.A. and Georgetown. And I think they're building more because they're not even sponsoring this episode. I'm just telling you because it's great for stuff like bachelorette parties because I've retired a lot of my sparkly tops in this Marie Kondo world we're living in. And uh, it's just it's so nice to have a place to go and anything you already rented. You don't even have to talk to anybody you just like scan it. They recognize the barcode on the clothing item from your account. You dump it in a bin that goes off to get dry cleaned. You pick out anything in the store you want, scan it, leave. And it's like you're shopping all the time for like really expensive stuff. You just get to take home and you're always wearing something new. And I'm honestly obsessed with it. The thing I can't speak to is not having a store nearby because with mail, there is more of a lag time and, you know, certain sizes and things might not be available. And I know that can be frustrating, but 
it's kind of like if you spend, you know, $100, $150 on clothes per month anyway on stuff you ultimately get rid of or crappy fast fashion things, even if it gets you like, you know, five, six fierce outfits a month, I think it's totally worth it. And it's just I'm over having things, you know, I just don't want more stuff. I don't want to just have things to look at them. I just want to feel good for a, one or two uses and then move on with my life as my tastes change and as the seasons evolve. And it's been a game changer for all of my star clothing, too. I have this Zach Posen star little purse right now that I think costs like $800 retail, but I'm just like toting around to karaoke bars like it's nobody's biz. But anyway, uh, if you want to use my code, it's KK40 for $80 off your first two months. When there's going to be a link in the show notes. Okay, they're not sponsoring this episode, but I just I like really think people will like it. I really think that people think rent the wrong way is just for ball gowns. So with my code, instead of getting the first month for $99, which is their normal promo, you get $40 off of two months. So even though it seems higher than $99, I think it's like $120 a month. It's actually going to save you double if you do it for two months. And I think two months is the time frame you kind of need to get like have enough variety of events to get used to the shipping and processing and lag times and kind of like see if it's something for you or not. So yeah, 8K40 is my promo code and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, and again, don't forget to support catch.co. Go to catch.co slash be there in five C-A-T-H dot C-O slash B-E-T-H-E-R-E-F-I-V-E. It's a one-stop shop benefits platform, like an automated HR department for people that are like self-employed in the gig economy, doing side hustles, full-time employees without traditional access to benefits. And like, I don't know about you, but I get pits in my stomach at night when I think about like not donating to my 401k and like, I feel bad about myself when I'm in a group and like somehow we get into like money conversations and people talk about their like diverse portfolio of investments or these different types of insurance. Or even when people are buying homes, I'm like, wow, I am behind in life. I, I've made some decisions that hopefully will pay off later, but certainly make me feel inadequate in the near term. And just simple things like this, helping me feel more organized and like I'm doing something right just gives me so much relief. So again, catch.co slash be there in five. And uh, there's going to be a link in the show notes. And yeah, as a reminder, if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash be there in five. There's uh listener there's fan there's super fan as my three tiers i think it's a dollar 295 and five dollars it's kind of just you know you co-signing that you want this podcast to keep going and it helps me do episodes without sponsors i'm posting a podcast that i recorded last week with my friend courtney where we talk about kind of the admissions thing we also talk about vanderbump rules and housewives and bravo and there's nothing like the joy of having an in-depth conversation with somebody that actually watches all these shows because a lot of my close friends don't. And I'm just in this really weird, difficult, Lucy, Lucy, apple juicy phase that I just need to talk through with people. And, um, you know, thank God for a fellow Bravo holics. And as always rate and review and subscribe. If you'd like, if you're in any Facebook groups for other podcasts or shows or whatever, and you see somebody post being like, what other podcasts should I listen to? And everybody's like, Oh, Dak Shepard, Conan O'Brien, uh npr anna ferris i'm just like everybody's always suggesting or it's it's always murder or it's always these huge huge celebrities that don't need podcasts that everybody listens to and then they're eating up the share of the charts and you know if you ever want to just plug me just you know be like oh you like celeb gossip and pop culture and 
you know, musings about life as a 20 or 30 something, try to be there in five. It would mean the world. Or if anybody's ever like looking for co-hosts, throw my name out. I'll fly there. I'll go. I um, am guesting on a podcast next week and doing some other press in New York, which will be fun, but I'm not going to tell you yet because with my luck, I don't know if everything will go through. And I like, I don't know. I just, I, I'm realizing that such an important part of podcast growth is the army of people you have on the ground kind of fighting for uh, other people's ears to give it a chance. And uh, I know you guys already do so much of that. And if you're new to the podcast and ever feel like it, just shouting me out would be so, so helpful because I want to be able to do more episodes, take it on the road, meet a lot of you, drink wine with you, all that good stuff. Just got to keep moving, got to keep growing, and uh, hopefully we'll get there soon. But anyway, guys, thank you so much as always for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. And I don't know what I'm going to send you off with. I'm going to add it in later. I forgot to tell you, I forgot to explain why I used Good as Gold earlier by one Sheena Shea. Um, I have no reason other than that. I think it's actually like a really cute song, and it's fun, and it could have probably been like a radio single if it was a little bit better produced. I mean... Sheena Shea said herself that this isn't her life's work. She's just doing it for fun. And I think it shows. Good as Gold is a real bop. And it's a song that I would maybe use as my intro song every week. Just because I'll open Pandora's box for you. I'll bring the rock for you. We're going to own the night. Like, what does that even mean? I have no idea. I think I'll end with the show choir version just because I want to hear it again. And the, the sorry, my HVAC's on. The, the concept of a choir or like a chorus teacher semi-trolling their students and the parents that had to live through this show choir bit with a Vanderpump Rules like Bravo Liberty single is so funny to me and I hope they do like Chic Say La Vie and Money Can't Buy You Class and Don't Be Tardy and all that good stuff. What's Melissa Gorga's? Melissa Gorga's song really is not that bad. Oh, on display. (laughs) these are talented women what can i say um i just i'm obsessed with the show choir routine that this school did to good as gold show choir is one of my favorite awkward high school things it's a lot of people that can sing well and really can't dance they're very off they're very uncoordinated but they're having a great time singing good as gold and i just am so obsessed with this so anyway allow me to transport you to a high school auditorium that's with heavily carpeted acoustics a really intense conductor that absolutely nobody is paying attention to, and a pit of students, some with a future who thankfully have access to the arts through their high school, but some there against their will because their parents insisted they needed an extracurricular, and for some unknown reason, the best option available to them seemed to be the trombone. Now, I can't, I can't emphasize to parents enough If you're going to have your kid play in the middle school jazz band or in the marching band or whatever it may be, semi against their will and they're not super into it, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of discretion when nudging them toward an instrument. You do not want them on a brass, which is a horn, a flugelhorn, a trombone. God forbid they do a trumpet. You do not want them on a woodwind, a a reed woodwind necessarily. We don't want bassoons. We don't want oboes. We don't want saxophones. Uh, Push hard for the clarinet, the piccolo, the the flute. Uh, 
or just have them take guitar lessons on the side so they can, you know, live out my personal worst nightmare, but a lot of women's dream of, of a, a serenade with the guitar. You know, I, I think that's like a very useful skill. I think the piano is a useful skill. And orchestra instruments are definitely a great thing to learn, to learn how to read music. They're so essential to so many artistic operations that it's never a waste of time if there's a genuine interest there. But if there's not really a future there and they're just blowing into it and, you know, I don't know, maybe use it to wake up their sibling in the morning who's not getting out of bed or are playing the saxophone in an era of Kenny G's peak popularity, it, it becomes tough for those around you. And uh, as somebody who's been through this myself, I just can't emphasize enough the importance of instrument selection. And to all you parents out there who have a kid that recently took up the trumpet, the horn, or the trombone. My thoughts and prayers are with you. I hope they like it. I hope they use it. And more importantly, I hope you have noise-canceling headphones. So with that, I apologize for the audio of this. It's a recording of a recording, but it's delightful nonetheless. Anyway, as always, let me know your thoughts, and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear. <laughs>